Welcome to the Leading Real Change podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, an expert in workplace culture change. From my unique background in behavior science, public health, and community advocacy, I help corporate leaders with evidence-based individual team and organizational change to create thriving workplace cultures for all. In the Leading Real Change podcast, I interview dedicated and passionate change makers about their careers, how they lead change, and what leaders can do today to make a difference, to build healthy, inclusive workplace cultures for all. I'm excited to share these examples of real workplace change with you. You'll learn about effective strategies that are working and how to overcome real barriers to change that challenge us every day. I hope you'll feel inspired and more confident to keep leading change in your workplace. Please share this podcast with other HR, DEI or ERG leaders who you know are working hard but are struggling to have an impact and need more support to effectively create a thriving workplace culture for all today. My name is Tony Jamus. I'm the CEO and founder of Oyster. I'm a father of three children, and I live in the beautiful island of Cyprus. I am Kim Rower. I head up employee experience here at Oyster. I live in Berkeley, California, and I have a almost six and a half year old daughter, very keen on everyone knowing that she is almost six and a half, and a two and a half year old son. Great. Thank you so much. And Tony, how old are your kids? Seven is the eldest daughter, and then I have a son who is two and a half, same age as Kim's son. And then I have a little one, a daughter, she is one and a half. That was one of the first things that drew me to Oyster when I was introduced to Oyster was that the CEO had kids who were the same age as my kids. And I knew that he was a dedicated father based on things I had seen him posting online. And I was like, okay, cool. We have kids the same age, we're in the same zone of parenting. And then Tony had to go and one-up me and have another kid. I was like, I don't even know how you're still alive right now. Yeah, I, I tripled my family size since Oyster started. And actually, my daughter, when she was a bit younger, she was very curious about my work on Zoom. And she would just come into the meeting, and I would just let her come in and just be part of the meeting. And she would just listen in. And she was just curious about what her father do. And I think it's important to let that flow happen because our children, we are the role modeling for them. They're really very careful about everything we say and do. And we know so much more about each other and our lives in this environment than we would if we were in an office. Like my kids have relationships with many of my coworkers because they're here when I get on a call and they meet them and they talk to them. And that just, that wouldn't happen in an office environment. Okay. So let's start a little bit with your journey, Tony, to where you are today. And was there any part in that where burnout played a role in that or even parenting played a role in your choices of where you are today? Both actually played a role. Let me start from the beginning, right? So I was born in Lebanon. I had to leave my country when I was a teenager uh, to seek better economical opportunity. I moved to France started computer science and became a technology entrepreneur. 12 years ago, I started a software company from London and San Francisco that was relatively successful, went public, got acquired. And then in that business, it was extremely intense. It was my, one of my first 
role as a technology entrepreneur of hyper growth companies, I burn out multiple times. And, and the fact that when I was born in Lebanon, I grew up in this civil war context. I have been diagnosed with something called PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder that increases your hypervigilance and increases the stress on your body and create all mental health issues. And actually these symptoms are not compatible with being a CEO of hypergross company. Like really, it is very destructive formula. So I've suffered quite a bit in my previous business, a number of burnouts. And when I finished that business, I took a year and a half off and I was committed on addressing that mental health challenge that I had with PTSD. And that led me to realize that I needed to, whatever I build as an organization, I needed to build an organization that can support mental health. And then also one of the objectives, I had actually my first daughter during my first company, and I used to travel 50% of my time in a different continent. And when I come back home, I would be working like crazy. And I have missed opportunities to spend time with her at this very early age. And I promised myself that I don't want to do that anymore. If I want to start a new business, I want it to be on my own terms. And these terms are support for my mental health and the ability to be present for my children when they need me. And this is where the whole concept of remote work started before the pandemic. I wanted to build an organization, Oyster HR, which is a global employment platform that is really supporting this remote work trend. We're designing an organization that creates flexibility, creates freedom, freedom where you want to live, freedom where you need to work. And that was the essence of Oyster is how can I build a business that works for me? And it turned out it's not only me looking for flexibility and freedom. Everybody is looking for flexibility and freedom. Yes, that's great. And thank you so much for sharing some of the details of that story. And I agree that is one really important tenant of burnout prevention is that flexibility and freedom to choose as well. I'm glad that you're designing it into it from the start. And your example shows that's possible. And we'll get into more of those details. Kim, tell us a little bit about your journey as well to joining Oyster and again, Many of us are experiencing burnout. So please tell us if that's been part of your journey. Oh, absolutely. So I spent the first 10 years of my career pre-pandemic. I spent doing kind of your typical VP of people, small startup career path world of building people and culture programming at various small startups. And when I was with the last startup I was with, the very last thing I did there was to take the company remote right when the pandemic hit the Bay Area in March 2020. My last day of work before going on, I was pregnant at the time, but before going on pre-baby maternity leave, the last thing I did was to take the company remote. And then my first day of maternity leave was the first day of lockdown. And suddenly I was home 36 weeks pregnant with my three-year-old home from preschool, trying to navigate how and where and when I was going to be giving birth in this new pandemic world we were in. And then three weeks after my son was born, I got laid off. And the blessing in that is that I had been feeling burnout in that job. I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about coming back to work in a pandemic after now becoming a mom of two. And the blessing was that I was able to take my full maternity leave as part of my severance package. I was able to have that time all together with our family when we were forced into quarantine together. If people can look back on April, May, June, 2020, those were really scary times in terms of we weren't seeing people. We were all holed up in our homes. And 
I was struggling enough with the day-to-day burnout of parenting two young children in a pandemic environment. We don't have family that lives nearby us. Just being us in our small apartment trying to get through every day was enough. And I can't imagine having to also deal with the stress and the pressures of work in that time. So in the end, I was grateful to not have to think about work and returning to work in that time. But it was certainly very challenging. What I ultimately decided was that I was going to take a break from in-house people work and go back to consulting, which is something I had been exploring as a side thing for a while. I thought, I just need to make my own schedule and do something that works for me and not try to solve everyone's problem in their organization and get a new job and figure that out right now. And I ended up working with and joining an organization called TendLab while I was out on my maternity leave unemployment journey, because I really felt like a big reason that I was feeling burnout in a lot of the roles I had been in was because of the challenges for working caregivers not being able to, even in very flexible work environments, not being able to be there for my family when I needed to, because I was commuting an hour away. If my kid needed to get picked up early from school, I was an hour away from them and often would have panic attacks about if there's an earthquake, how am I going to get home to my family? I'm all the way across the bridge. Luckily, my husband works close to where the kids are, but I'm so far away. And that was weighing on me all the time. In addition to the lost time of spending two hours a day commuting back and forth, So when I had the opportunity to work for an organization that was trying to make things better for working caregivers, I just poured everything I had into that for about a year. And that's how I met you, Jacqueline. It was through that work. And what we learned in that work is that a lot of companies, despite everything we were learning from the pandemic, weren't feeling quite ready to support caregivers in the way that caregivers needed it. The businessy way to say that is we weren't making enough money in trying to do our consultation work and our advocacy work to support ourselves as working moms running this business. I think I told you this story, Tony, but very serendipitously, the same day that my Attend Lab co-founder and I got together and over a handshake and a cup of coffee decided, okay, we both need to find other paid work. That very same day, I got an email from Oyster through the contact form on my consulting website, inviting me to interview for their interim head of people role. I said, okay, universe, like I'm listening. Here's my sign. And I met Tony and I was like, okay, this guy's a working dad in a small, but very quickly growing startup who wants to change the way we think about work and create a better workplace that can influence a greater world of work. It's not just about fixing one company. It's about building a company that can teach other companies how to do it right. I was like, this is a really cool opportunity to have that bigger impact. And after about six months, we hired my boss, who's the full-time person that I'd been interiming for when he asked me to stay on and focus just on our employee experience efforts, which is just a total blessing. It's the first time in my career that I've been able to focus on this part of the work that I love so much as a full-time opportunity. Usually it's something that's like a sprinkles on a Sunday. Yeah, that's so important, actually having a very dedicated role to this, because again, when you ask people to do these important roles part time, then their whole promotion trajectory can be effective. And it's just not the investment that that we need to see in these efforts. I think a part of that, too, is what Tony, you started with, which is also that intentional design that remote work is possible. And these expectations are for everybody that we can all fit into this new way of working. And just to even think back to something that Kim in her research with TendLab found, which was that the concern that CEOs like yourself would have to actually take 
paternity leave to show that they have another role in their life because potentially investors are having that same judgment that the Kim's trying to face, which is you're not committed or you're not professional if you have these other roles. Tony, tell me a little bit about how you've taken a stand as a leader to make that a a reality and what's the most important message that you as the CEO want to convey around this as a leader so we can change these norms. Jacqueline, just to understand better your question, you're talking about the the norms that some leaders and investors believe that if you are a caregiver, then maybe you're less serious about your career. Yes, exactly. That one of the barriers to CEOs role modeling, taking paternity leave was they would do it for their employees because they saw that it was a good role model. But on the other side, their board and potentially investors were then saying, if the CEO is out on paternity leave, who is running this organization? So it was a valid concern because of the social norm around these types of things. So I'm wondering as a CEO, how you have bridged that challenge and what you've decided to lead with and to convey in your leadership. Sure. I think first and foremost is role modeling. When my children were born, I took more time off and parental leave than people would expect a CEO would take. I've taken a month and a half each time. And I also created a style of working that is very empowering for my team. And I hired a capable team on people on my team that were able to really operate without a CEO for a period of one and a half, two months. And finally, there's also role modeling in the way I designed my team on my executive team, my C-suite, C-level people. We are gender equal. We have our president and our CFO, are women with children. And then we have our chief people officer who's a man. And also we're hiring chief revenue officer as well who's a man. So we're creating this intentional distribution to show that you can be very successful by allowing caregivers to be part of the workforce at very high levels. And I'll just pump that statement up with all of our C-level leaders. There's a lot of parents out there on our C-suite team and they are active public parents. When we hired my boss, our chief workplace officer, one of the very first things he did was share a slide deck about himself. And I think it was the first slide. He said, I'm a dad first. My family will always come first. Here are my kids. Here's my spouse. This is what I'm about. And our CFO is out on a three month long maternity leave right now. And our president talks about her kids publicly, openly a lot. And just having that be the example from the top, it's not just, oh, we have a token dad on the executive team, which I've seen many times before. It's we have active, involved caregivers who also are caring for their parents too. That's something that's not really the topic today. Leaders across the company have been open about the challenges that they have or the needs that they have as someone who's caring for aging parents or relatives as well as children. And that kind of public example is so important. I would like to add is also, it's also an evolution of management and leadership because in the past, leaders cared about numbers, only numbers, right? I'm generalizing, but you have this culture in, you know, say, public companies in the U.S. that have influenced many other companies across the world. It's about quarterly results. It's all about the numbers and things are shifting. It's becoming about the numbers and about the people, right? And if you continue with these assumptions, then you're not able to attract talent that could be amazing and also care about people. When we are parents, we care about people. Actually, parenting open us to caring about others more, right? So you need people like that in the organization. 
especially at the higher level, if you want to build a people-centric organization. And it's also about trust as well, in a sense that you need to trust your team to be there for the business when you're on parental leave. And so the fact that leaders believe that they are indispensable is actually a problem. Actually, the great leaders make themselves indispensable, right? And trust their team to step up. There's something interesting, Tony, that you said many moons ago, that for Oyster to succeed in its mission, we have to be a people-first company. And it's not about the numbers. Obviously, the numbers have to be there for the business to sustain and be a successful business. But if, if we achieve business success with a team that is burnt out, disengaged, not able to live their lives outside of work, then we haven't achieved our goal. Because we're trying to set out to prove that you can be a successful business while also being a people-first business. And so those things are equally important to us. We can't be a successful business if we're doing it at the expense of people's health and well-being. And there's a kind of a philosophical question here, which is if we're designing a business world that doesn't give everybody an equal opportunity, especially the caregivers, then we're making people make a choice between career versus caring about your children. And I don't think this is a world we want to live in, right? We want to have alignment between caring about your career and caring about your children. Your children wants you to have a career, right? Because you want to role model that for them or whatever impact you do in your life, they're going to look at you and they're going to learn from you. And so you don't want to give people this difficult choice to make. You don't want to live in a world that makes people make a choice between career and care for the children. You want them to do both. And again, there's so many strengths in caregiving in terms of ability to listen and collaborate and the resilience we get from being a caregiver. Also, like you say, it's not just that we're losing the talent war as well when we have employees that are burned out, but actually the McKinsey and Lean In report on the great breakup was saying 80% of employees want diverse, healthy workforces. That's what they're looking for. So this transition to people first is so important. Has there been any situation, Tony, where you've had to really push back on that with investors or that's not happened? Not really my investors, right? So I also surround myself with investors that can have affinity with these things and are supporting me in building one of the most human-centric organizations in the world, right? So this is part of the strategy we have to be human-centric to be successful because we're selling a global employment platform that makes companies more employee-centric as they build their distributed team. So it is part of a strategy. They have to be supportive. Now, we still operate within guidelines of financial results and numbers and investments and cash burn and all these technical startup terms. And we have to make it happen. We have to make it happen somehow. And within these parameters, we want to make sure we are more and more employee-centric. Great. I think that's so important to really show that you're leading with that strategy. And again, that is part of burnout prevention is that leadership and that vision and showing that it all aligns. And so I think you do, you have to make that alignment at all levels. So one of the things you talked about was trust and also a really important condition for mental health in the workplace for diversity, equity, inclusion is psychological safety. And I'm a fan of the Berkeley EGAL Center's model of how you create psychological safety. And one of the really important parts of that is for leaders 
to show vulnerability. So that was something I know we talked about when we met previously. That was something that you were really trying to embody is vulnerability as a strength. So can you talk to us about that? Because again, it isn't necessarily what we have as a social norm and a stereotype of a male leader even. I want to start with this quote I saw today on LinkedIn from Simon Sinek. He said, uh, great leaders don't tell you they are great leaders. They tell you they are human. And that means, what does it mean to be human? It means that we have strengths and weaknesses. We have vulnerability. We have needs. We are needy. And we are reactive sometimes, and we don't function well in this world that is full of stress and pressures. We're not necessarily designed well for it. That's what it means to be human. So by being open somehow to a certain extent about some of these challenges, let's say, I remember a year ago, I was going through a pretty high-pressured fundraising process, and I was working crazy hours exceptionally during that time to go through, I don't know, 60 different investor pitch, I got to a place where I burned out and I shared it with a company and I received amazing support from the company. But this shows that I'm not a super human, I'm just human. And also to why this is important for me, it's important because it makes people feel safer to be okay some days from time to time, not to operate at hundred percent. And if you have that openness in the organization, then you, uh, you have higher engagement. You can achieve more purposeful work. You can shape how people interact with each other as well, because you don't want to start creating these fears that, hey, you know, I want to hide my stress. I want to hide my weaknesses. And I just want to always try to defend my strengths. And that start creating cultures that can lead to blame and politics, toxic behaviors that are not helpful. Great. Thank you for that. Thank you for that cultural vision that comes from you. So then, Kim, tell us a little bit more about some of the infrastructure, because again, we can have the leadership and the feelings in the culture by the messaging and the role modeling. But what other infrastructure, what decisions and policies have you put into place to actually support people to be able to really live these lives? The scaffolding that you provide is so important because like you said, that's a nice idea. And I'm glad that our CEO feels this way or whatever, but what about me? How do I engage with this personally? That can be a big gap for people to fill on their own and taking into consideration that people come to a new job and a new company with all sorts of baggage from previous roles, previous bosses, previous life experiences, that they're not going to naturally walk in necessarily with an open heart and trust and confidence and psychological safety. You might have to help them unlearn some fear and learn to trust in what you're building. And one of the ways we do that is by operationalizing, this feels very technical, but like by operationalizing how we normalize mental health. So there's a couple of very specific things I'll call out for folks who want some takeaways. One is we have a partnership with a company called Kona. They integrate with Slack for daily or weekly mental health check-ins. And we have normalized that as being something that we encourage all managers to implement within their teams. We do like internal analytics and reporting on overall sentiment within the company. Kona is just a fantastic platform. We just released a case study with them. If you want to learn a lot more about that, you can read the case study. But having that be something that our executive leadership team participates in, that individual teams participate in, that's part of our vernacular and part of our operating as a way of being able to check in and say, today's a yellow day and here's why. Today's a red day for me and here's why. And it 
prompts you to follow up with your coworkers who are struggling. And as a manager, it prompts you if someone on your team has been struggling in ways that you might not be able to necessarily have the attention to notice on your own, which is very human, right? And the other thing that we do that I want to call out is our mental health channel on Slack. Because for anyone who's listening to this, who's an HR professional, HR leader, like I was very afraid when one of our employees suggested starting a mental health channel. There are lots of HR specific reasons to be afraid of such a channel from compliance to potential for discrimination to does that help or harm your desire to create psychological safety. But given our goals as a company in terms of the type of experience we're trying to create for people, I wanted to give it a chance knowing that I would be in there, folks from my team would be in there to keep an eye on things and make sure that it was living up to the channel's own ideals and not going off the rails and that people were feeling comfortable and weren't feeling exposed or anything like that. And it is it has been one of the most remarkable and transformative things I've participated in at any company I've been at. There's a solid, I think like a third of the company is in the channel and people from all levels, all departments, all demographics participate openly and actively sharing their daily mental health challenges, their ongoing challenges, their successes, their wins, their support for each other. We're very clear that this is not a place for medical or psychiatric support, that it is a peer like support group. And if you need professional help, we offer four free therapy sessions per month, plus additional support through our mental health partner at Plum. We partner with them to offer free therapy to our employees, as well as other mindfulness and wellness benefits. But just having a space where you can say in front of your coworkers, I'm not okay today and have people chime in and say, Hey, I'm not either. And here's why, or here's something that I do to ground myself when I'm feeling that way. Or I use this deck of quotes to get me inspired every day. And here's the picture of my deck for today. And just sharing things with each other and being really open about those journeys has just created this really special space. And I've had many folks reach out to me and say what an impact it had on them, knowing that there was a place where they could be open and not judged and just be supported. And whether that's Tony posting about something that's challenging for him or someone sharing something that they're feeling that day. It's such a beautiful way to normalize those experiences. And it's made a huge impact on me. And it may not be right for every organization, but it's certainly right for us. And thank you so much for sharing that. And there's so many parts of that that make sense to me in terms of, again, we don't want to feel alone. Again, that's why I do this podcast. And I'm so grateful when people describe their burnout journeys, because then we're not alone. And as you say, we can learn so much from each other because we're in these similar situations and challenges. It's one of the ways to combat burnout, too, is by being in community with others that can give you the energy to pull through or to take a break. Like sometimes you're feeling so burnt out and you just need someone to say, hey, it sounds like you might just need to take a day or two off and get some space for yourself. And giving each other the permission to take care of ourselves is a fantastic way to combat burnout. Because it can be very isolating. So again, permission and perspective is rather so important, and especially when it comes from a peer versus a coach, because that's what coaches can do. But it is so helpful from that peer perspective. And just as you described that data dashboard with Kona, again, when we see these things in front of us, they prompt us to follow up with our colleagues. They help us notice. And those are the things behaviorally that we need. We need prompts and reminders and cues 
cues to action because you're busy doing other parts of your job. They're not on your mind. So again, these are such great, like you say, operationalizations and logistical tools that we need. So thanks for those examples, but also the concern you had from an HR perspective up front, because I think many companies are afraid to admit their potential role in causing burnout. But then if they don't- Doesn't mean it's not there. Right. It means that you're trying to run away from it instead of embracing it and saying, how can we get through this together? Exactly, exactly. So those are great examples. So Tony, one of the other challenges that we have is, again, to help with burnout and also to help with employee engagement, we definitely need that vision that you provide. And again, an alignment of values, because some people definitely experiencing burnout because they don't feel that their work is meaningful and that they have a purpose to go towards. That's not everybody's burnout experience. Like your earlier life burnout experiences was much more around overwork and performance and driven and ambition. And there's people that are experiencing burnout in that way. And that's when a vacation can be the answer. But some people experiencing burnout because of lack of purpose and meaning in their work. One part of this is that we have these values that, for example, can guide an organization. But again, there's often this disconnect between a mission that a company has and then actually the daily demonstrations of behaviors that make a difference. So Tony, can you describe some of the ways that you live the values of Oyster and how you do communicate those daily? Yeah, let me talk about the mission, being mission driven, being purposeful, having a just cause. These are characteristic of any business should have, and many do. However, usually it is not center. And if things get tough, the mission is the first thing that get disregarded in terms of behavior and focus. What we've done at Oyster is we are a mission-driven company first and foremost. We happen to be in HR tech, but first and foremost, we are here to reduce inequality, reverse brain drain by giving people opportunity through remote work all over the world. And we've embedded that in everything we do in the business from our objectives to the product we build to what we measure. And that gives meaning and purpose to people. And you need to also communicate it. You need to remind people. You need to connect what they do with the impact that you're making. Yeah, again, it's very selfish because also my burnout was linked to the fact that maybe I wasn't doing as meaningful work that I could. And by launching Oyster, I was able to align what I believe in with what I do better. And that gets me out of bed every morning and get me to work to overcome challenges that I wouldn't have enough motivation to do in the past. And I would feel that I have meaning with what I do. And I think it's not only a burnout prevention mechanism, it's a midlife crisis prevention mechanism, because when you look back at your career, you usually we do have a midlife crisis when we don't find meaning with what we achieved in the past and we start looking for meaning. So leaders have a responsibility to embed that in everything they do. And also this is not because it's nice. It has direct impact to performance to level of engagement, to customers buying from you, to retention rates. Like there's all sorts of data that shows that mission aligned and mission-driven organization performs better on everyday mention. Exactly. And thank you for those examples. And maybe I'll still prod a little bit, which is 
we do have all this data showing these benefits, the benefits of mission-driven and more diverse organizations. So why do you think we're still stuck in this status quo and the social norm not to have those tenants as part of an organization? I think there's a number of reasons. One, it's really the evolution of organization from as I mentioned earlier, very corporate-driven, monthly hitting goals type of purpose only to, to something broader. And that's going to happen with increasingly seeing war on talent and shortage of talent because companies, they want to create environment that attract and retain the best talent in the world. And the best talent in the world is looking for meaningful, impactful, and engaging work. The other re- reason why is the incentive structure in many organizations are purely financials, and it forces leaders to maximize certain numbers on the PL, like their bonuses. And, and sometimes they are big bonuses, especially for leaders in public companies. And that drives the behavior of all other companies in the world because public companies are like the Hollywood of business, right? And that's the dangerous model to follow. I said there's also the reminder that I keep giving myself is that change takes time. And I've been doing this work now for close to 15 years, and it's only in the last three years that I've seen change that feels more exponential. And I think that that was one thing that the pandemic did. We talked about this a lot at 10 Lab. It like ripped off any pretense that things were working before. And so now there's more of a resistance now to going back to the way things were before than there was. There's more of a resistance to the old way of doing things than there was three years ago. But I talk about this a lot with friends who were there in the early days, if we call it like back in 2009, 2010, the early days of kind of HR tech becoming a thing. Like at the time, there weren't that many good technology solutions for HR professionals. There wasn't a lot of talk about people and culture as a strategic part of your business. There were certainly companies who were getting into people analytics and talking about culture in in these ways, but it seemed very much, this is something that Google can do. This is something that Netflix can do, but it's not for me and my company. But over the course of about 10 years, we saw the evolution growing. I remember right before the pandemic, I was helping a friend put on an HR tech kind of event. And we're like, we've got 5,000 potential vendors to choose from who want to like sponsor this type of event. And that just was not the case 10 years prior. And I've just seen a huge uptick in the last three years. We see it with the FamTech genre of like companies springing up to support working families. And that's the acceleration of the development in awareness feels like, okay, now like there's some momentum coming and we just have to keep pushing things forward so that we don't slide back into what feels comfortable for a certain demographic that tends to be old, straight white men. And again, I think that is some of the question is about the generational issue and that there is this new drive. As Tony said, talent wants meaningful work. So there is a change in our expectations. And I think particularly what Tony talked about, those incentives at all levels are so important because, again, our employees often are not being evaluated on their contribution to retention to DEI and to team morale. We can see from the data that those are not things that are in promotion criteria. So again, it's so important that we build these incentives in, not just at the level sort of Tony was talking about from society and the economy, but also within companies. How you work and what you care about and what you hold yourselves accountable for. Tony's co-founder Jack put out a really great piece on LinkedIn months ago that I still think about how 
the way that most companies are set up to do work today was based on a work design coming out of the industrial revolution. And the workplace has not radically changed from that idea of how we show up at work in over a hundred years. And it's time to think about a new way of how we define success at work and how we show up to build that success at work. And that these things that we're relying on now, you have your 40 hour week. Sometimes you have to work 12 or 14 hours and this is how overtime works. And it's like all these things that we take for granted as assumptions about the workplace were designed to protect employees from an even worse way of working. So what is the new way of working going to look like? And 50 years from now, hundred years from now, are we going to look back at this era and say, God, can you believe that we used to work 12 hour days? And can you believe that we thought 40 hours a week was the right amount of time? And that we used to commute to cities and who knows what we'll be thinking in the future. But now there's a reason that we're on the cusp of rediscovering and reimagining what work should be. And I think that's what's so important is it has to be intentional and it has to be designed in the way that Tony's been talking about. And again, I don't think when we think about things like the eight hour day, it was based on a certain type of labor. And if we think about now the more cognitive tasks that we're doing in the day, maybe actually the best for us are six hours a day because the nature of work itself has changed. Technology has evolved too. Like it doesn't take as long to do things as it did when you were working at a certain type of machine in a factory. Like it's just, we're applying a certain type of work rule to a type of work that we're not doing in a lot of these cases. Yeah. And that's what the Surgeon General said to help prevent burnout. Let's get rid of all the stupid stuff. So (laughs) that's definitely a step we need to take. Okay. So just then to wrap up, let's look a little bit at the future. What else would you like to achieve? What other improvements do you want to make? What are other optimizations or totally new strategies that you have on both your agendas that you want to be able to work on to keep this change moving or to also continue your role as a leader in this space? Something that I'm really interested in exploring with Oyster and in the world is the idea of the nonlinear workday and that people who are doing largely knowledge work, obviously this doesn't apply to something where you have to have certain hours of presence in your shift, but in general, the knowledge working population, we should be encouraging people to work when it is most productive for them, rather than saying you work remotely, but you still have to work from nine to six and take your lunch break at this time. Unless there is a specific reason why you need to be working at a specific time, we should give people the freedom to contribute when it makes the most sense for them and design their workday around the lifestyle and the work style that works for them the best. And I think there's a lot of room for growth in this, even in fields like customer support or IT or like DevOps and like fields where there is generally considered to be a schedule and uptime. In my perspective, there's no reason that you shouldn't be able to schedule your shift in three hour chunks throughout your day or four hour chunks throughout the day and take that two hour lunch break to go on a hike or to take a nap, do what you need to do in your personal life. This idea has been completely life-changing for me at Oyster as I work my work schedule around my family obligations and also my personal, just the way my own brain works and when I'm most productive. And if I know I need to do creative work, knowing that like that might mean that I'm going to work late at night after the kids go to bed when things are quiet. Rather than saying, okay, I need to finish this work by 5 p.m. And so at two o'clock, it's creative time. And now it's time to use my brain in that way because I just don't work like that. And so that's been completely life-changing for me, thinking of my day, my work day non-linearly and 
I'm going on this personal mission now to see how far I can push that with everyone at work. And I think that's what they found in the book, how the future works with Helen Cup, who I've also interviewed, is the flexibility in the time is way more important than any other part of flexibility. Yeah. So Tony, lead us to the end here with your continued vision. So I would summarize that as in the future, I believe that work will adapt to your lifestyle. Um, so your work style supports your lifestyle. You'll be able to design. This is the lifestyle I want to have. This is the amount of hours I want to give. This is when I want to work, when I want to stop working. This is the locations I want to work from. So you put that input and then the work adapts to your lifestyle and supports your lifestyle. I think we are at the beginning of this trend of freedom and flexibility. We're going to have more freedom and more flexibility in the future. And there's so many creative ways to get people to be highly productive and do meaningful work as you evolve the way you're working. And this is really, as Kim was saying, it is crazy today that in my previous business, I had to travel 50% of my time changing continent from San Francisco London to do internal meetings, just internal meetings. Like this is, when I looked at my CO2 emissions, 95% of my CO2 emissions were air travel. Whatever I do, I can go plant-based, I can stop using transportation, I can maybe buy an electrical car, it doesn't matter. 95% was air travel. This is like, we are the beginning. But we just assumed, right? Like we didn't even question it. We just assumed this is the way it has to be. We assumed and we have to change that chip and the chip has changed. And now it's really about experimentation, evolving these models. It's not all figured out yet, but I don't know if you feel this, Tony, but we don't always do it right at Oyster. Sometimes we default to synchronous communication and pulling each other into meetings when we don't need to. But when it works... When you pass the baton to your coworker in another time zone and they pick up the project and when you wake up in the morning, it's moved forward and you can pick it up and you get into this asynchronous flow, it feels like magic. It feels like you're in the future. How do we unlock more of this? How do we make this the default for not just us at Oyster, but for everybody? Yeah, and I don't want to create even more buzz for generative AI, but here you go. I feel that AI is going to totally augment and transform what we do. I go on these platforms and I say, hey, I have a board meeting. Please give me tips to manage my board. And then boom, like, why do you need a CEO? CEO, you don't need a CEO. I can go have more babies. But I want to finish with this idea of globally distributed organizations. Also, it's going to be the future where, like at Oyster, we are in 80 countries. We have people from 110 nationalities. We are totally blind to which country we hire from. And it created a planetary level diversity. And it's beautiful. It is so fun, so engaging, and so impactful for the business because we get all these point of views and value add from everybody around the world. And the sun never sets on Oyster. And to that point about, that's a great soundbite there, Tony, because one of the things we talk about with how we make this work is our concept of follow the sun. And the sun never sets on Oyster, but that doesn't mean the sun never sets on you in your life. And your work needs to follow the sun so that you can turn off and know that the sun is rising somewhere else and there's always going to be something to do. But that makes us have to combat the burnout even more because, yeah, the sun is always rising at Oyster, but you got to go to bed. Jacqueline, I don't know any company that has such a creative employee experience person. Perfect. So that's why we have branded t-shirts and mugs about follow the sun. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks so much for listening today. 
I hope the podcast brings you fresh ideas, renewed confidence and energy to keep leading change. If you need a partner in these efforts, I can help you effectively build a thriving workplace culture for all. I'll help you overcome the real barriers to change you face every day and help you lead real change with evidence-based solutions. In particular, I want to work with passionate leaders who have tried and failed. Because I know you have what it takes and your experience will help you clearly recognize the difference I can make. For a free consultation today, please visit my website at www.leading-real-change.com. That's www.leadingrealchange.com. Feel the 